Hi, everyone, and welcome to Human Centered, brought to you by VML YNR. I'm Nick Brunker, a director of experience strategy and your host for the show. Thanks for giving us a listen. On every episode of Human Centered, we explore how brands, both large and small, are creating meaningful customer experiences and discuss how professionals like you can tap into CX best practices to create value and gain traction in transforming your business. In many ways, 2020 paved the way for the sustainability market to gain some serious traction. 96% of businesses said that they are feeling increased pressure to become more sustainable, and a whopping 86% expect their sales to grow over the next year from a greater focus on sustainability. Since we're releasing this episode on Earth Day, we thought it'd be a fitting time to talk about something we're calling biocentric design. To help us do that, I'm pleased to be joined today by Jen Bonhomme, a managing director of strategy and insights here at VML YNR. Welcome, Jen. Thanks for being with us. Hi. I appreciate the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think as we unpack all of this today, I'd love to continue kind of going a little deeper into what is biocentric design? Why does it matter? I know there are going to be ways we can um, exemplify what that means, but I know it's an area for you that that you're very passionate about. um, and, And there's a lot of opportunity area uh, for marketers and leaders in, in all different types of industries to really to, to weigh in. So I guess we can start off by by just defining it a little bit. What is biocentric design in your mind? Sure, yeah. Um, so biocentric design is really kind of a paradigm shift for, uh, for human-centered design. Um, and it is shifting from human centricity as the sole focus in the design thinking process. So it's really an approach to design thinking that uh, collaborates with nature and is extending an inherent value to all things. Um, So really biocentricity is challenging the notion that, you know, human-centered design is by design anthropocentric. So in its view that, you know, anthropocentrism is that, our meaning is led by our underlying survivalist belief that human beings are the most important entity in the universe. So some people say that this is the era that we're living in, but um, really it's challenging the notion that should the human be at the center? Is that accurate? Um, and so whether it's customer experience, user experience, human computer interaction, design, the goal really of human-centric design is to solve pain points for people by empathizing with their experiences. And I think when we talk about biocentric design, we're talking about challenging that given the current state of the natural world, you know, that we need to start treating nature not as separate to our endeavors as human beings, but as an active collaborator in our lives and our work. And so we really are talking about shifting away from this human-only view and acknowledging, and this is like the Buddhist side of myself coming out a little bit, but <laughs> acknowledging, you know, our interdependence with the living planet. Um, and that's really, I believe, can be for the betterment of business and experiences and also um you know, our lives and our survival. Jen, why do you think biocentric design matters for business and why leaders need to pay attention to it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't think we need to, you know, spend time on whether climate change or climate crisis is real and, you know, that urgent action needs to be taken. I mean, I think that 
there is definitely a shift towards more shared values. You know, the work from Michael Porter that's coming out of Harvard Business School um, around creating a mutual exchange that's beneficial between what's equitable for society and for people and what's good for business are interdependent that, you know, uh, it's bad business to deplete resource. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just from a very hard nosed point of view, but I think, um, you know, we are in a position where urgent action needs to be taken. And so, you know, I'm fascinated by design thinking generally because I'm fascinated by human behavior. I mean, people are incredibly irrational. (laughs) We have a lot of blind spots. Um, you know, it's not cause we're, (laughs) We, we don't try. It's just human beings have blind spots. It's part of, you know, our evolution. And um, a lot of these blind spots benefited us in the early um, history of human beings. So we had the ability to kind of escape the saber toothed tiger that was going to potentially try to eat us during the hunter gatherer days. But, you know, some of the blind spots that impact us today, when we think about uh, the environment and sustainability Um, And climate change are, you know, biases like, you know, the bystander effect that thinks, oh, someone else will deal with this Mm -hmm. or our perception that the, you know, what's in the immediate present is more important than what's in the far future. You know, that kind of discounting that we do. All of these things actually helped us in survival, you know, early days survival. And now today are actually preventing us from making actionable change. And when I say I don't mean that as just consumers, you know, you have to buy the right thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, even us as people that are part of organizations and companies and institutions to make choices that are going to impact change on such a grand scale. So what, why is, does any of that matter? I think is really, you know, design thinking has this incredible ability to create behavioral change and removing barriers from some of those uh, cognitive biases that are standing in the way of people on their own doing what's right for the natural world. We've started to, you know, and we're in a place in time where we are framing out the natural world from our everyday lives, mm-hmm. you know, not this way that indigenous people used to live. Um, and so I think, you know, consumers and, and employees will struggle with sustainability if it's not convenient, if it's not frictionless. Exactly. And, you know, we're seeing significant demand changes in asking for solutions that are more sustainable, you know, to the point that new products and services and innovations that prioritize sustainability are able to steal share of market and differentiate their offerings. And we know that these kind of consumer choices are helping to change company behavior. But I think really when we bake it in from the center rather than treat it like a bolt-on is when we're able to impact solving pain points and take into account that the pain points do need to have broader framing than what's immediately in front of us. So I want to ask you a follow-up question on the idea uh, around the first bullet point you mentioned regarding sustainability and the struggle that uh, that customers have when it may not be convenient or frictionless. And then translate mm-hmm. that to, to a leader of a business who wants to be, understands the value of being sustainable and having sustainable practices, yet in the market they may be in, when 
the idea of doing something that is sustainable against something that may be perceived to be more friction filled when they're at odds, how do you as a leader attack the problem so that you're not putting yourself in a bad spot, uh, making an experience perhaps not as convenient, yet also trying to be as sustainable as you possibly can to kind of check that box? Sure. Yeah. And I think it depends on how tangible or intangible, um, you know, the choice will be, you know, so if it's with something physical, because sustainability so often is related to the physical, um, you know, then it's a kind of a a cost value, um, you know, equation, and you're kind of trying to weigh, okay, for example, if we are going to, you know, say we're an espresso and we're going to make our pods recyclable, you know, and we know there's consumer demand for that. How much do we, you know, where else can we recoup the cost of that within, mm-hmm. you know, our overall business model of selling a machine and selling a subscription to pods? I think that, you know, so you can tackle it from that angle, but it also can be as easy if you think about it from an experience point of view, it can be as easy as nudging towards the right kind of behavior and using some of our understanding of our biases to encourage and help consumers frame the way they make choices. Mm -hmm. So like a great example is, hey, maybe ground shipping takes longer. But if you build into the website the option for ground shipping and you say the carbon footprint comparison between the two shipping options, maybe mm-hmm. your customer is willing to wait those you know extra days. That's right. You're thinking about that example that, that I think Amazon has, has started to tee out there a little bit where yeah. um, a while back it was, you know, you're going to get two-day shipping if you're Prime no matter what. Whereas, hey, if you want, we'll give you a $2 credit or 20% off your next purchase if you just choose to go the, you know, the ground shipping or the super saver route, so to speak. And so, like you said, that there are opportunities to to not necessarily you know throw away what is arguably one of the the bigger innovations of the of the 21st century so far which is the fast and free shipping like Amazon and others have adopted but but saying okay if I'm Amazon and I'm wanting to be biocentric I can still offer my customers those options but then I can put the power in the customer's hands to say hey if you don't want to make us forced to put three different products in three different boxes and ship them to you three separate times. Just wait five days, we'll give you five bucks off or whatever that is. And I think that uh, is what you're you're touching on a little bit, is it not? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I think it's a, it's a really fascinating example um, because I think that, you know, you think about friction and we think about journey mapping, we have to map the whole journey because I know talking to customers, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance and there's research out there on it. I mean, you think about the Amazon example is a perfect one, such a customer centric company, but there's cognitive dissonance and there's almost like an angst now that comes with the packaging usage that needs to be solved for. That's a pain point for customers if we're going to be realistic about it. So maybe there's ways that we create alternatives to offset that. And I think the more awareness that people have, and again, you know, people and consumers are very irrational and we, we actually don't understand a lot about what is genuinely sustainable mm-hmm. and what is genuinely good for and bad for the environment. Um, it's, it's a moving target, but there is a feeling of wanting to contribute in the right way. And I think that that is the demand that I'm talking about that really has the ability to drive 
companies and uh, design thinkers to prioritize this in the right way. We talked about the Amazon example. What are some other real world use cases that our listeners can latch on to? Yeah, so my my personal fascination with this subject, um, because it is like, you know, on the periphery of uh, my total area of expertise as I come from brand strategy world and, and then crossed over into the design thinking world and, and but my fascination came from um, shopping for milk and and just going to Whole Foods and buying the own brand milk. I was like, why is there no plastic spout on this milk carton? And, you know, they had the old school fold and tear kind of mm-hmm. opening. And it really dawned on me that why does that plastic spout exist? And it's because probably for freshness, probably for uh, easy to pour, easy to open, you know, solving pain points in a product, removing friction from a product, but contributing single use plastic at scale, at major scale Mm -hmm. to the environment. And, you know, if you ask someone who worked in a recycling center, I'm sure they'd be like, why on earth does this thing exist? (laughs) (laughs) Take me back to the beginning of that process then. If you're in the room and we're sitting down around the table, hopefully in person, because COVID's gone in this example, and we're uh, we're solving a pain point, which obviously you just highlighted why those, um, those milk cartons may have been built the way that they were built. How does one get to the point where you say, okay, we've got a human problem. This is their usage problem of this product. We're trying to create a solution for said product, yet you're also weighing the same thing that we've been talking about, which is biocentric. What does that first step look like to to start to marry those two? Yeah, so I think from the design thinking process, like at a very high level, we always talk about desirability, feasibility, and viability, right? And I think what I'm arguing that we introduce and what is being introduced very often, biocentric design is talked about as eco design, um, is adding in sustainability into that frame. And I think, you know, when you frame it from a pain point, lens, it's very hard to say, well, one of the pain points might be, you know, future weather challenges and changing climate as a pain point Mm -hmm. (laughs) to not being able to pour your milk the Mm -hmm. same way with as much ease. You're looking at total footprint, right? And so, you know, that will have cost more to put that little spout into the carton of milk mm-hmm. it will have cost more um, and it would have been okay well but it's is it worth it because it makes it easier for the customer is it going to be differentiating enough mm-hmm. then it became the standard and then a company like whole foods comes along and goes actually doing what's right for the environment is part of the reason people shop with us they can mm-hmm. trust that we'll make that call and so that might even mean going back to some things that were better the way they were. Now, sometimes it might mean innovation into something new. Sure. But in this instance, it meant going back. And I think these are all the little tiny touches that cumulatively add up to a brand that will have equities that you can rely on and trust and has credibility and will build a sustainability credential that you don't feel is greenwashing or BS. That's why I think it's it's great because we talk about uh, journey mapping, we talk about human empathy, and I think it's, it's a case study in the need to constantly be updating your journey maps 
constantly yeah. updating what the customers see as priorities because I think the data will play out that you know let's say 15 20 years ago even even more than that that's probably not a pain point in their journey that's probably not even on their radar in their journey no, map. and so now as we you know move towards a, a new generation where you know Gen Z and beyond are going to become major players in our world economy you're going to have to be able to not only generation to generation but I'm I'm pushing for you know at least annual journey mapping reassessment and we'll get into that in another podcast I'm sure but it seems like this is a, a great case study for why you do have to be constantly updating the desirability feasibility viability that value centered focus with both bio and human centered yeah, and I think also, you know, we very often, a lot of the work that I've participated in in the customer experience design process and in design thinking projects, you know, my role is usually early on in the vision stages. And I think it is about grounding in vision. It is about understanding what your mission and objectives are and understanding that from a value exchange lens. Because, you know, having that big what if, what if we could is something to constantly be grounding. I think also, you know, the stages of viability, feasibility, desirability, and sustainability. Because, you know, if I think about like some of the clients that I work with, when I think about their vision mm -hmm. and you make sure that we're bringing that into frame, usually there is a way to think about the big picture and the long term. And we don't get into just the steps along the journey as well. So I think it's kind of like, you know, toggling between the two um, in how we approach and, and solve problems is critical. As a global agency, we have leaders who have a presence all around the world. So approaching biocentric design might look very different region to region based on cultural or economic markets. So while a company may have a strong presence in the U.S., let's say, or, or the EU, it's just as important to view the approach to biocentric design from a global perspective, right? Just a agnostic of geography. I feel like it's important to remember, you know, because business is always competitive and that when it comes to what's right in uh, sustainability and thinking biocentrically, that there is no competition, that it is always cumulative, that we are standing on each other's shoulders. And I think the best place for understanding, you know, the current global impact, you know, the UN does a lot, the World Economic Forum does a lot in terms of pushing this agenda um, and their sustainable, sustainable development goals to create a barometer that works across borders because it is very easy to get lost in the minutia of data rather than focus on what matters in terms of shifting away, not just from getting to reduced impact, but into you know regenerative impact, impact that has positive net output versus reducing harm only. And I think changing our goals is going to be really critical. I, you're seeing so many companies now prioritize this. I mean, business has moved away from the Friedman doctrine of shareholder value above all else mm -hmm. into a much more stakeholder view that really is prioritizing more of what's equitable. And I think the struggle is really like, how do we connect it up? You know, how do we help our executive partners and organizations that are challenged with this kind of longstanding disconnect on sustainability? help them see that and realize, you know, 
it as a path not only to progress, but also profits and building thriving business. Because mm-hmm. I think there is still a widespread belief that sustainability is something that you do in addition to doing business. But what we're learning is that sustainability is becoming business. You know, I talked to my neighbors who are, I live in New York, so a lot of people in finance talk to my neighbors who are in finance. And, you know, renewables is a huge area. You know, you're seeing innovation and technology especially create incredibly thriving and growing businesses in the area of sustainability and businesses that are looking to diversify and generate new revenue streams, Mm -hmm. if they're able to focus innovation efforts in this capacity and start to frame sustainability as a real business opportunity, they are able to do more to meet that triple bottom line. And it is what you're seeing in, in just an example in the automotive sector, especially. Obviously, the the you know bright shiny object of battery electric vehicles, um, you know, spearheaded by by several different brands. But I mean, you, you talk about that as a really drastic change from this was our business model before. This yeah. is our business model now, and it 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 does force that um, innovation that you talked about about the consumption model and okay now that we're we're building things this way what other revenue streams are there what can we do to help our customers get from a to b in the mobility space does that mean that it's you know ride shares that sort of thing it's just one industry um but i think you're you're spot on it really transcends a lot of different industries across business for for those that are interested in kind of digging in a little bit more is there any set of resources or encouragement that you would give to, besides listening to this podcast, of course, adapting biocentric design into your your current or their current human-centered design thinking approach? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, um, I will always encourage people to read. I am a huge fan of, you know, not following the hype and following my curiosity and reading outside of my comfort zone into scientific areas that I probably am. <laughs> <laughs> Not a scientist by any means, but um, keeping yourself educated on what truly has a positive impact in the environment, what you feel like is actually helping. So, you know, there are people out there. Um, Medium has a lot of great thinkers and design thinkers like Layla Akaruglu um, and Felix Habeck. Um, have both published stuff on Medium that we can share. That's really great. I actually did a design thinking course from MIT, uh, their Emeritus program online. And I think there's more and more coursework online now too, if you really are interested in this. And the course I took, they talked about everything from life cycle assessment to you know the high level methods of quantifying the impact of an experience or product over its life cycle you know, learning about how to create the right kinds of feedback loops and and see the viability of them. I think it's there's real opportunity to probe these areas. And then I would even encourage looking into other areas of design that might go outside of the experience world, like architecture is one that you're seeing some really fascinating work mm-hmm. um, from like Dark Angles and has done some great, you know, recent work in Copenhagen. And, um, you know, there is a lot in the design world around sustainable design. Uh, in architecture, because obviously, you know, cement and some of the physical parts of creating buildings is quite impactful in a negative way on the environment. Um, so you're seeing you're seeing this trend a lot more in the physical spaces of design. But actually, I think there's real opportunity to take that thinking from what's in physical design and translate it into what's more intangible and experience based design, you know, like Uber Eats nudges people to 
not use or opt out of utensils if they're mm-hmm. not going to use them. That's exactly right. Like it's such a great little example um, if we think in that way. Well, and it's giving the customer the choice. I mean, that that's I think part of the the genius of it is that it it is not necessarily forcing an action in that example. It's giving the convenience of of utensils or plates or whatever if it is needed. But if you or I don't need those utensils or plates very likely most places that you go offer a checkbox to say, no, I don't need those. So the customer gets to choose and they feel like they're making a difference. The the company's obviously saving dollars and cents as well as is saving the environment. So it goes back to that, that viability, desirability, feasibility, and sustainability. It's very cool. Yeah. And I, I would, would, would be surprised if they didn't learn that through research. I mean, you talk to people who use Uber Eats and get feedback Mm-hmm. And you do the rigor of the design thinking process where you're interviewing, you're observing latent needs, you're there with your customer and user, but you're considering the outputs and the waste streams along the way, alongside thinking about what's possible, thinking about what energy and materials are used. Form solid questions and in your question formulation as part of your design thinking work, mm-hmm. you know, surface pain points that might get you there. I guarantee you that Uber Eats found out that people felt bad about getting all this plastic mm-hmm. in their di- with their dinners. And at one point prior to, and maybe it wasn't Uber, but another company may have started the trend of putting those utensils in the bag because years mm-hmm. ago they said, oh, wouldn't it be great if it. it was on the go, they need the utensils, they're eating on the go, great, let's do it. But yeah. if you don't reassess, continuously update and look for that, that human empathy, eventually it's going to, to be a losing proposition. That's, that's really cool stuff. I know uh, before we wrap up, and I know we're running out of time, you have a unique perspective because you've lived all around the world and you've spent time all around the world. And I know you were touching about on architecture and, and different uh, places that you've been and, and sites that you've seen. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background in travel and, and what's taking you around the world. Sure. Yeah. So when I graduated from college, I um, had, well, I did a study abroad in Australia and uh, it got, gave me a little bit of the travel bug. I did, did not go very much abroad when I was younger. And so I wound up, I moved to Japan and I spent uh, a bit over a year there, um, which then through meeting people and through my own travel and experiences wound up in England where I did my uh, master's and then eight years living and working in studying, living and working in England, which, you know, gave me a great platform to bounce around and travel to a lot of different countries around the world. And I, and I really like, I really enjoyed living abroad versus just visiting places because it does allow you to have a different type of empathy and change the way you are wired and how you think to be able to respond to the culture and the environment. And it makes you more just responsive to what's happening around you. So I think um, it's a great way to challenge what you think to be true traveling and and right now I'm staying put in the U.S. So it's been a lot of road trips. Well, I know it's it's hard to probably pin down your favorite because you've seen a lot of different places. But is there one area of your travels that stands out as is one of your favorites, if not the top? 
Uh, it's such a hard question. I mean, I've been to a lot of places. I was in Brazil very recently and I loved, loved, loved going to uh, Rio and some of the beaches south of Rio. But I think my favorite place in the world is, um, or one of my favorite places, top three for sure, uh, is a place called Miyajima, which is outside of Hiroshima in Japan. And um, it's a little island that ha- is, you know, a lot of people go there as tourists because it has a very famous Tori gate, but that's not the reason why I like it. I like it because there's this really beautiful temple that has just like all these really cute, funky, weird figurines and you go in the basement and it has glow-in-the-dark Buddhas and it's just like <laughs> a really funky out there temple and I just love it there. So it's called Daishoin if anybody is interested in looking it up. That's awesome. Um, but yeah. Very cool. Very cool. One other plug, I, I know you mentioned Medium earlier. It, you're kind of a, a medium celebrity yourself you've uh, put up a, a medium page and kind of publish lots of different great frameworks called the framework bank tell us a little bit more about that and how people can get involved yeah so that is a little collective that i've created of just curating frameworks from brand strategy design thinking connections uh, business strategy any strategic frameworks that help people think and solve problems. You know, I personally believe that templates can lead to templated thinking, but sometimes it also is a great way to give you like a little bit of constraints to (laughs) unlock and free your work because I'm the type that my mind does wander. So I love a good framework. So um, (laughs) yeah, I, I put them all in one place so people can access them easily and they're there to help. That's awesome. Very cool. There's a link to that Medium page, by the way, in the show notes for this episode. So any listeners who want to jump in and check it out, they can go there to find out more. You can also follow Jen on Twitter as well, at Jen Bono. Jen, so great catching up with you about biocentric design today. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. And as always, thanks to you for listening to Human Centered. We'd love to hear your feedback on the show. Just give us a rating and offer up your thoughts wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and more. You can also find us online at vmlyr.com slash podcasts. If you have a topic idea or just want to drop us a line, connect with me on Twitter at Nick Brunker or just shoot me an email, humancentered at vmlyr.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.